for a second. Ready to imagine? Yeah. Okay, imagine that you were on a boat, okay, in the middle of the ocean, and all of a sudden you received a radio call from the Coast Guard, and they said, beware, a storm is coming. And this is a tremendous storm. Beware, it's coming. Now you see when the storm's coming, and you look at your watch, and you realize, well, there's no getting out of this one. There's no time to make it to the shore. There's no time to escape. It's like, good, great that the Coast Guard warned me, but what are my options here? You know, you're not going to stop the storm from coming, and it would be unwise to jump off the boat. The boat is your only form or way of salvation. So what do you do? You just got to weather the storm. You just have to endure through the storm. See, Jesus, in these parables, he's going to warn the church of things that are inevitably going to come. We can't prevent them from happening. And it's interesting that he wants us to be aware of these things. We're going to look at three parables in Matthew chapter 13. We talked about the parable of the sower last week. Um, Matthew chapter 13, we're going to look at the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. In all three of these parables, Jesus is calling us to beware of certain things that the enemy is going to do in an effort to infiltrate and destroy the church from within. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, Beware of Tares, Birds, and Leaven. Beware of Tares, Birds, and Leaven. Okay, Obviously, these are words that Jesus uses, and this is symbolism to get across a deep truth. But we see throughout all of these seven parables in Matthew chapter 13, they all talk about the kingdom of God. Okay, and in every parable other than the parable of the uh, hidden treasure and the parable of of, um, the pearl of great price, we see evidence of the enemy. See, he's attacking the church. He's trying to destroy the church from within. And he does this in various different ways. He deceives the church uh, through corruption, through compromise, through false teachers, any way he can to lead the believer astray and or to prevent the unbeliever from accepting the true gospel. Okay. So uh, you'll understand as we dive into each one of these parables, but um, if you weren't with us last week, uh, most of you were, we talked about why Jesus spoke in parables, which is really important to understand as we dive into these parables. He just explained it uh, in verses 10 to 17, but we talked about how Jesus speaks in parables to put the responsibility of understanding back on the person hearing, right? To put the responsibility of understanding back on the hearer. So he speaks in a parable and right off the bat, we read a parable and we're like, ah, I don't really get that. But then we see two times in two separate parables here, he explains understanding to who? 
he explains understanding to the disciples, those that are seeking him for understanding. The rest of the people, they're just hearing these parables. They're like, I don't get it. What does Jesus talk about? Wheat and tares and leaven and mustard seeds. What does this have to do with anything? But we see in uh, verses 10 and verses 36 that the disciples sought Jesus out and Jesus gave them understanding. That was the whole point of the parables. It wasn't just to leave people hanging. It was to put uh, or produce a desire in them to search God for understanding. We talked about um, an illustration I used was, was Easter eggs, right? We talked about the Easter egg, right? And um, some of us, when we hide Easter eggs for children, if we practice that pagan holiday, we hide them so that the children will what? That they'll search out and find them and they'll have joy seeking and finding them. Some of you uh, admitted your wicked and evil ways and said that you hide um, Easter eggs hoping that the children won't find them. And we're not referring to you. We're talking about like the godly people that, that are like God, that conceal matters, not so that we wouldn't find out the understanding of these mysteries, but that we would seek him for understanding, right? We talked about how it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search a matter out. So that's exactly what we're going to do in this time here, in this teaching, is seek out understanding in these parables. Picking it up, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, uh, I'm going to read Matthew 24 to verse 30, and then Jesus gives us the explanation in verses 36 to 43. So I'm going to read both of those back to back, all right? Let's skip right to the understanding um, after we read the parable. Another parable, verse 24, he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Look at verse 36. He gives the explanation. Then Jesus sent the multitude away. And went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. See, the multitude went away, but the disciples are seeking Jesus for understanding, right? Look at verse 37. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear." 
Okay, so now that we got like the full context of this parable, let's dive in and purpose to understand it on a deeper level, okay? Back in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, says, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man sowed, uh, sowed good seeds in his field. So we just looked at the explanation and we know the man here is Jesus, the man sowing good seeds, Jesus says that's him. Okay, the field is a picture of the world. It's also, as we'll see, a picture of the church as well. Okay, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. All right, that's the believer. Now remember, in the parable of the sower, the good seed was the word of God, the gospel. So essentially, it's the gospel producing sons of the kingdom. Okay, Tares are the sons of the wicked one, and the enemy of the sower is obviously the devil. Okay, that's what he just explained to us in um, his explanation to the disciples in verses 36 to 43. Look at verse 25. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Okay, now we see that in this culture, in that day and age, often if you were the enemy of a farmer or specifically someone that grew wheat, that enemy would often come and plant tares where the wheat was grown. Why? Because you cannot tell the difference between tares and wheat. Tares are actually a plant called a Darnell plant. It's an actual thing that exists and they look exactly like wheat. They grow the same. They look exactly the same. You can't tell them apart. You can't tell the difference until harvest time. And then the color changes and the wheat uh, looks like a brownish golden color. Many of you have seen pictures of wheat before. And the Darnell plant, it turns black. Now, the Darnell plant, it's off infected with a deadly fungus so that those who eat it can get really sick and possibly even die, okay? But you don't know any of this until harvest time. So you cannot discern the difference between the wheat and the tares. They look the same. Follow me? Verse 26 says, but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So, it's not quite harvest time yet, so it's really difficult to tell what's a wheat and what's a tear. See, this is a picture of both the world and the church. What's Jesus trying to say here? There's unbelievers in the church, okay? There's wheat that's going to produce a crop, and there's tares that are going to be a, a fungus or a disease that are going to kill and destroy because they're sons of the wicked one, like we said. See, coming to church, simply coming to church doesn't save us. Which brings me to the first point. Coming to church doesn't save you, okay? Coming to church and simply hearing the word being taught, it doesn't save us. We can't have security and salvation from simply hearing the word of God. See, we just looked at the parable of the sowers and what happened. We talked about four different types of soil, right? We talked about how the wayside was like the hard-hearted person. They don't receive the word. We talked about how some sprout up and um, produce a little bit of growth, but it's short-lived because they don't have deep roots. Uh, we talked about growing too close to the world and conforming to the world. And then we talked about the good soil. See, 
all of these people in the parable of the sower, they heard the word, but only one group of them had lasting change that occurred in their life. The word of God is supposed to change us, okay? How are we really saved? Well, it's Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, amongst uh, many other scriptures, but Paul sums it up like this. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What's my point? See, our belief in Jesus, even in the context of that scripture, our belief should affect our behavior. My belief in Jesus Christ, if I truly believe that he died for my personal sins, a brutal death that I deserved, that should affect the way I live. It's not just, uh, I said I believed in Jesus and I'm good. No, we see that the word of God is called to change us. It's called to transform us from the inside out. Jesus saying, there's wheat and there's tares in the church. This is scary. These parables are very scary. When you're just like, wait a minute, what? There's people that are coming to church that they look like they're a believer. They walk the walk, they talk the talk while they're at church. But maybe they're a tear. Who knows? We don't know. Because he's speaking of salvation. We don't know who's saved and who's not saved. We can only look at the world, word and see Okay, this is what it says salvation means. is believe in my heart unto righteousness, meaning that if I believe Jesus did that thing, it should, should lead me to a place that I'm purposing to live righteously. Not that I'm perfect, but I'm pursuing perfection because that's what he's called us to. Of course, we're going to have shortcomings and fall, and that's what grace is for. It's for the fall. But my point is, as we see here, you can't tell the difference in these things. And simply coming to church, it doesn't secure us in our salvation. See, good fruit marks a true believer. We're not going to know the difference between a wheat and a tear until the end of the age. That's what he says here. Pick it up in verse 27. So the servants of the sower, sorry, the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Now watch this. He says, the servants are like, wait a minute, you sowed good seed. What is he saying? The good seed we talked about, it's the gospel producing the kings of the kingdom, right? We talked about the parable. So the, the seed is good. The gospel is good. We talked about this last week. The gospel doesn't need to change. It's the hearts of men that need to change. The servants are like, you sowed good seed. Why are there tares? They're confused. And Jesus, who's the sower in this parable, he says, the enemy sowed tares. That's why you're seeing the tares. It's because the enemy is out to steal, kill, and destroy what I started. He's out to destroy the church, and he's sowing bad seeds or tares to destroy the church from within. The enemy, he's referred to in many different things. He's referred to the father of lies. He's referred to in Revelation 12, 9, the deceiver. He uses deception to infiltrate the church. See, 
if the enemy knows that he can't prevent the growth of the church from the outside, he's going to try to corrupt it from the inside. So what you see as growth isn't really kingdom growth. I'll explain, and he gets into this with all these parables. Here's an example. He can deceive the unbeliever into thinking that they can just come to church occasionally or on Christmas and Easter and whatever and and everything's okay. That they can just say the sinner's prayer and they're saved. Okay? Now, this could be true. You could say the sinner's prayer, which isn't in the Bible, but you could say the sinner's prayer. You can confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. That could happen. You could truly believe it. You could truly be saved. But James, he warns us of a specific kind of belief that doesn't save. In James chapter 2, verse 19, he says, You believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. What's James saying there? Yeah, that's great that you believe in God, but the demons believe in God. The demons recognized Jesus when he went to cast them out throughout the Gospels. What's the difference between a believer and a demon? Well, the demons' faith didn't lead them to a place of following Jesus. See, the demons, they believed in Jesus, who he was. They knew who he was, but they still rebelled against him. See, Satan fell with a third of his angels. Their belief didn't affect their behavior. Their belief didn't lead them to follow after the Lord. Now, see, the demons, um, lucky for us, they, when, when they rebel one time, they never get the chance for grace. There's no grace for angels. There's no, there's no uh, salvation for those that rebelled against the Lord. They're They got a one-time chance. They chose to rebel against God and they're condemned for eternity, okay? Unlike us, as as people, we have the opportunity for redemption. See, we can uh, have a lifestyle that rebels against the Lord. Maybe uh, in the beginning of your Christian walk, you came and you kind of confessed the Lord. Eh, You don't know if you really believed and your lifestyle was rebellious, but eventually you came and you gave your life to Jesus and you decided to follow the Lord and that belief affected your behavior, affected, affected your lifestyle. It affected the way you lived then that's a belief that saves. The enemy is trying to deceive the unbeliever that they can simply hear these things, that they can simply come to church, that they can simply just say a prayer, and they're good. It's like, I don't know, when you look at the context of Scripture, if that's really true. If we have a belief that doesn't affect our behavior, then is it a type of belief that actually saves us? He warns us of this. Many will come to me, and this is hard, it's heavy. Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, and they'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. This is the belief that Jesus is talking about here. It's a faith that has substance. It's a faith that looks like something. See, a wheat and a tear, they look very much the same, 
But at the end of the age, it will be revealed what was truly in the heart. If that relationship with Jesus was truly there. It's not that we have to work for our salvation or we earn our salvation. Salvation is a free gift. It's freely given to us. But what are we doing with it? He says in verse 28, that second part, I want to reread it. He says, do you want us then to go and gather them up? The servants say, hey, do you want us to separate the wheat from the tares? And Jesus says in verse 29, but he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't separate the wheat and tares. It's not for you to discern who's saved and who isn't. That's not for you to judge, okay? Brings me to the second point. Be careful about separating the church. Be careful about separating the church. Now, the Bible clearly speaks about excommunication, okay? It talks about, um, and we won't get into this um, really in detail because it's a lot, but it does, it does encourage us. Yeah, there's a certain type of person that if they're causing disruption, if they're causing all these different things in the church when they're um, really trying to come against the church and obviously wicked and evil and all these different things that they're really not supposed to be there. There is excommunication in the Bible, but what Jesus is talking about is, is being very careful in our discernment of who is saved, who's not saved, who should be in the church, and who shouldn't be in the church. It's not our job to separate the church. He'll do that at the end of the end of the age, um, it's our job to love people. It's our job to endure with people, to, to display Jesus, not just with our words, but the way that we live our life. See, love endures with the tares because we don't know what's a tear and what's a wheat, okay? Maybe you see people in the church and because of the way they dress or they still curse or there's certain things the Lord's still working on them with and there's certain sins in their life maybe and you're like, dude, they're a tear, obviously. God's using that person to disrupt the church. Can't you see it? Come to me, I need you to kick this person out of the church. No, none of you have ever done that, but just pretend. Okay. It's like, wait a minute, no, wait, I don't know. Is that a weed or is that a tear? I don't really know who am I to judge and he says... It's not for you to judge that. You got to be very careful about separating the wheat and the tares. I have this friend. I have this friend. He's one of my best friends. His name's Ian. I didn't ask him if I could tell this story, but I'm sure he won't mind. <laughs> so Ian, 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 um, really good friend of mine. I met him in Calvary House and just. He's in my wedding. I'm going to be in his wedding. Long, long time friends. So Ian, before he like really followed the Lord, he would sit in church all the time. And you know what he would do in the back of the church? He'd have a hoodie on and he'd hold his middle finger up to the pastor the whole service. It's like, what? Really? Like <laughs> he would tell me that he told me the story and I'm like, really? And they let you say, he's like, yeah, they would just let me sit in there in the back of the church and I would just be flicking off the pastor. I'm like, why are you in there? He's like, I don't know. My parents would make me go and I just hated the whole church concept. I hated everything, yada, yada, bitter at God, the whole deal. Now, Ian is in full-time ministry, loves the Lord, um, has discipled many people. He works at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. Like he, He's doing it, 
But if anyone looked at him, if you saw somebody in the back of this church flicking me off the whole time, like, that's a distraction, that's a disruption, you'd probably be like, dude, you need to get out of the church. What are you doing here? But what we would see as a tear, God sees as a wheat, and now he's producing much fruit. Point is, we just got to be very careful. We don't know where that person's out, and we don't know when that seed is going to take root and fall on good soil. That person's life is going to be changed forever, and they're going to produce much fruit. So we got to be very careful about judging and separating the church. We know judgment begins in the house of the Lord. I'm not talking about that specifically. We'll save that for another day. But in context to what we see Jesus speaking with here, okay? So we endure in love even if we think a person is a tear, okay? We don't know whether they're tears or not. So just love everyone and you'll be safe, okay? And we better learn to love them because they're going to be here for a long time until the end of the age, Jesus says. Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we see Jesus, he uses his angels to separate the wheat and the tares. In Matthew chapter 25, we won't get into it in detail because um, I'll be teaching on it in probably a couple years from now. Um, But he talks about separating the sheep and the goats, right? And we see this separation that happens. Now, the sheep and the goats, they're both hearing the word, but what's the difference? To sum it up, the sheep are hearing the word and they're doing something about it. They're not just loving in word and in tongue, but they're loving in deed and in truth. And he talks about, hey, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. You took care of me when I was in prison. These are the sheep. They're hearing what I'm saying and they're doing what I was doing. And then the goats, hey, you didn't, you didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't drink. You didn't give me water when I was thirsty. You didn't visit me in prison. He's like, wait a minute, Lord, if we would have known that it was you. And he's like, hey, when you do these to the least of these, you do these things to me. I'm just summing it up. But we see the difference between the sheep and the goats was the hearing and doing. The sheep heard the word and their doing was expressed in love towards others. And the goats were those that heard they didn't do anything with it. They didn't love on people. So we see at the end of the age, God is going to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, important to keep context here as we move forward into the next parable, the parable of the mustard seed. Um, he's going to continue this theme of seeds, right? Um, With the parable of the mustard seed. And we just learned that there's believers and unbelievers in the church. There's wheat and there's tares. And the wheat represent the sons of the kingdom. The tares represent the sons of the wicked one, the sons of Satan. Now in this next parable, we're going to see how Jesus... um, We see Jesus communicate how the enemy uses the tares to infiltrate the church and allow the church to grow using false doctrine. Okay, context is crucial here. Now, you may have heard this parable taught different ways. Um, I'm going to teach it this way, and I'm going to make an argument about why I'm absolutely convinced it's supposed to be taught this way. Verse 31 says, another parable 
he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it grows, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Okay? The mustard seed was the smallest seed in that day, in that culture. Okay? So this is true. The mustard seed, it's, it's this small seed, the least of the seeds, but it grows to become something great. Okay? These parts are true. The gospel started small. The kingdom of heaven started small. It started with Jesus just doing ministry, and then what did he do? He invested in 12 guys, and they turned the world upside down for Jesus, or right side up, however you want to think about it. But they changed the world for Jesus Christ. It started very small, and then it started growing rapidly. But look at the cause of this growth here in verse 32. It says, so that the birds of the air came so that, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. See, this mustard seed is growing to become something unnatural. Mustard seeds don't grow to become trees. They grow to become bushes. So Jesus is telling right off the bat, there's something wrong here. Okay, this mustard seed was never intended to grow to this exponential growth. It was just supposed to become a, a, a bush. But now it's a tree. Now it's massive. This is not the way it was supposed to be. This is unnatural. Brings me to the third point. Exponential growth isn't always good. Exponential growth isn't always good. See, Christ promised us that he will build his church, okay? The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But not every church that's growing is Christ's church. Just because the church is growing, that doesn't mean that it's Jesus making it grow. There's churches that are growing that aren't from the Lord. Now think about this. So there's just over 7 billion people in the world today. Okay, it goes up every day. 7 billion people. Um, Over 2.2 billion people are self-proclaiming Christians. That's 30% of the world proclaim that they're Christians. They say they believe in Jesus. That's a lot. That's a huge amount. But what does Jesus say? He says, narrow is the road and difficult is the path that lead to life. And there are few who find it. There are few. 2.2 billion, are they all Christians? I don't know. Not my job to judge between a wheat and a tear. It's my job to look to the scriptures. And Jesus said, there's going to be few who actually find it. So why is this mustard seed growing beyond a bush into a tree? Why is this exponential growth happening? Because the birds of the air are nesting in its branches. Okay, The birds of the air, in context, the parable that we just discussed last week, who were the birds? Look. In verse 4, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. The explanation, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. The birds are a picture of the wicked one. They're a picture of the enemy, the demon. Okay, demons, all right? Which brings me to the fourth point. Beware of the birds. Beware of the birds. See, the enemy is 
Like I said, infiltrating the church from within. He's trying to corrupt it from within, okay? And he's going to use, as we'll see, he uses men to get his false doctrine across to the people in the church. Flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, verse 13, sorry, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. for such are false prophets, deceitful workers, trans- transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. The enemy is going to raise up his own teachers. The enemy is going to raise up false apostles, false preachers, false teachers to deceive the church from within. This is a picture of the birds. See, the birds of the air, the birds of the air, get their doctrine from the prince of the air. Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Okay? The doctrine of demons has entered the church and now the church's growth is not solely based on truth, but on lies. It's growing, yeah. The word of faith movement, prosperity gospel, the emergent church. You see all these other things taught that are really a different gospel. And Paul warns us of this clearly in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. See, this was a church that was getting away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were getting away from the gospel of grace. They were adding to it. And look at what Paul says. This is a warning we got to take heed to. Verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. It says, if an angel, if anyone preaches another gospel to you, let that man be accursed. This was something that was going on in the church uh, constantly in this time. There was a false gospel being presented you had the um, Gnostics and other uh, religious groups at the time that were taking what Jesus did and kind of changing it. And really the delivery was a, a different gospel, a gospel that doesn't save. Remember what Jesus was just talking about. He was just talking about the wheat and the tares and he talked about how we'll know the difference between the wheat and the tares at when The end of the age. Okay, follow me. Second Timothy Chapter 4, verse 3, Paul is going to warn us of something specific that's going to come up more and more often towards the end of the age. Look what he says. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. 
wait a minute, as we get closer and closer to the end, people are going to raise up teachers for themselves to tell them what they want to hear and not what they need to hear. They're going to get away from the truth and they're going to pursue things that sound good, that tickle their ears, that don't challenge them to change or grow because you just like, I believe in Jesus, I'm good. It's like, wait a minute, what's the, what does that mean to believe in Jesus? What Jesus is getting at here with this parable is, yeah, the church is going to start small and it's going to grow. It's going to continue to grow. But what's it growing into? See, the tree was not what it was supposed to become. It was supposed to simply become a bush. Something unnatural is occurring contrary to what was originally intended to be. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, he is rebuking the scribes and Pharisees, and he gets to a doctrinal part of it, and he's like, you raise up proselytes, but what are you really raising up? Okay, they're going around preaching um, uh, basically the Jewish religion. He's like, you're making converts, but what are they being converted into? He says, you make them twice as much of sons as hell as yourself. That's what he says to him. That's scary. He says, you're preaching, what you're preaching is converting these people to a place that they're believing something that is going to condemn them to hell. See, false teachers make false converts. And we got to be very careful as we look at the growth in the church in this world as a whole. Well, what do we do though? What can we do uh, personally against this? Endure sound doctrine. He says a time will come when people don't endure sound doctrine. So what do we, we endure sound doctrine. We get back to the word. We get back to the roots. How do we endure sound doctrine? If you flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. This is just one example. There's a lot of ways we could go with this, but I think this is very important. He's talking about the deep things that the Holy Spirit reveals to us, Right? Uh, in this context. And then he says, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit's our teacher. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What does he mean? Comparing spiritual things with spiritual? Comparing scripture to scripture. See, most false doctrine is based on one text based on one verse and someone takes one verse and they develop a whole doctrine out of it to endure sound doctrine we got to compare spiritual things to spiritual things compare scripture to scripture we can't just look at one verse in the bible and just form a whole belief system out of it we got to look at the whole of the bible the entirety of it so when we get away from looking at the whole of the bible we'll get caught up with little verses that lead us to believe things that might not necessarily be true. We need to see the fullness of it. We need to be like the Bereans. See, that's what they did. Paul, powerful preacher, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Apostle wrote, you know, half of the uh, New Testament or more. He's preaching to the Bereans. He's communicating in power. And how did the Bereans respond? says they received the word and then they searched the scriptures. They were enduring sound doctrine. See, I don't want you guys ever to just take my word for it. 
Don't just take what I communicate to you and be like, oh yeah, I believe every single thing that he says. Now, my job is to communicate you, to you um, true understanding of the Bible, not just one passage, but its entirety. That's why I go to so many different scriptures and I give you so many different references because I'm not just teaching you the Matthew 13 parables. I'm trying to get you to go to other places in the Bible so that you can have sound doctrine, that you can understand it on a deep level because my desire for you is to go back. I know you can't write down all these different scriptures and flip through all of them, but with what you can write down that you would go home and search the scriptures, that you would go home and say, hey, no, what he's saying is true. I see it. No, no, no. This reference says this, this reference. No, this is, this is true. I've received the word, but I'm also searching the scriptures. It's our job to endure sound doctrine because the enemy's going to use false doctrine in the church to let us think that it's growing in a good way when it's really not always growing in a good way. Parable of the leaven in verse 33 says, another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened, okay? So both the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of uh, the leaven, many people will teach us that, look, the kingdom of heaven, it starts as this small thing like a seed and it grows so great and so big and that's what Jesus was talking about. But it's not. Jesus was just warning us about the enemy. Same thing with the leaven. People will say, oh, the parable of the leaven, it's just like, um, you know, you take, um, you take bread and you add yeast. Who's ever baked bread here? Yeah? No? No? Yeah? Michelle has. Have you had it? Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, so what happens when you bake bread? You add yeast. What happens? It rises, right? It expands. So some people will say, oh, the yeast is like the word of God. And, um, you know, as you, as you bake it or whatever, it grows and it expands to this magnificent thing. But that's not true. Leaven in the Bible is always a negative thing. It's always synonymous with sin and wickedness. Leaven is not a good thing. This isn't good growth that's happening. Yeah, it's growing exponentially again, but not in the way that God intended it to be. Uh, let me just look, um, if you would look with me back to Exodus chapter 12. This is... Um, where the, the Feast of Passover is instituted, uh, which marks the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, let's look at the original story real quick. Uh, just read a couple verses, and I'll explain a little bit. Uh, verse, Exodus chapter 12, verse 15 says, Seven days you shall not eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Does leaven sound like a good thing? Okay. On the first day there shall be holy, a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner, no manner of work shall be done on, on them, but that which everyone must eat that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this day, I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Okay, so the Feast of Unleavened Bread, now basically because of Passover, um, the 
Israelites had to get out of Egypt quickly, right? So they weren't allowed to leaven their bread practically because they didn't have time to wait for it to rise. But in the Bible and throughout scripture, and I'll show you another reference, leaven is synonymous with sin because what would have happened if they leavened their bread? They would have had to wait. It would have slowed them down. Okay, leaven is a picture of sin that slows us down. It prevents us from what God's called us to. God was calling the people to the promised land. He'd called them on this great, magnificent journey. If they wasted time messing with the leaven, then it would slow them down and prevent them from this journey that God had called them to. I'll explain further. Look with me uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, speaking of leaven, makes it even more clear here. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? It spreads. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Look at the comparison there. He likens leaven to wickedness, to evil, to sin. Purge out the leaven. Get rid of it so that you can be a new lump, a new creation in Christ. Get rid of the leaven. And he likens us to unleavened bread. What does that mean? Unleavened bread, no yeast, no leaven. It's sinlessness. See, Jesus, he fulfills, I'm not going to get into all this because it would take me a whole thing, but Jesus fulfills the feast of unleavened, of unleavened bread, okay? Because he's the sinless lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of the world. Unleavened is synonymous with sinlessness, okay? Now look back at Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to make another, give you another reason why. This is not a good thing. Okay. The kingdom of heaven, verse 33, is like leaven which a woman took and hid. Why is she hiding it? Why is she hiding the leaven in the measures of meal? Why does it need to be hid? The fact that she, she's hiding it is a problem. But such is the nature of our sin. We tend to hide it. Okay. Which brings me to the fifth and final point. Don't hide the leaven, get rid of it. Don't hide the leaven, get rid of it. If you keep it around, it's going to spread. Okay, it's a picture of sin. It's a picture of compromise. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin progresses. It doesn't just stay there and it's okay. You either get rid of it or it gets worse. See, just before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, what the household would do was they would <clears throat> make sure that they got rid of all the leaven in the house, okay? They would make sure that there was no leaven in the house at all, okay? They'd get rid of it um, originally so that they could, um, this was, they knew that this was a picture of sin and then moving forward in their journey with God, but they had to get rid of all the leaven in the house. And has anyone been to a Seder dinner before? Seder dinner, Passover? Okay. Passover meal, um, 
there's a lot of symbolism uh, about Jesus and there. The whole thing's about Jesus, really. It's really cool if you ever go to one, even a, a Jewish one. It's amazing. Um, but one of the traditions is uh, that one of the youngest children would uh, often take um, a little like scraper or a little brush or a feather, sorry, a feather, and they would um, seek and search throughout the house for this last bit of leaven. There was still a little remnant that would be left so that the youngest would take the leaven and they would get rid of it. They would toss it outside, okay? This was a picture for us that we're always to be searching and seeking that little leaven in our life that we need to realize is there to seek it, find it so that we can get rid of it, that it couldn't be tossed out the door. And they actually do this at the Passover meal. We're called to seek out and search. Hey, God, search me and know my heart. What are the things that are wrong in me? What's the wickedness in me? What are the sins in me that are preventing me from the fullness of the journey and path that you have for me? And that was the picture here. So we're called to get rid of it. It's only slowing us down. One of the ways uh, <clears throat> to get rid of it, James speaks of in James chapter 1, verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Okay? So not just get rid of our sin, but endure temptation because temptation leads to sin. And when sin's full grown, when it matures, it brings forth death. That's another thing that James says in that context. But we're called to endure temptation. See, temptation is only temporary. Temptation is only temporary. Okay, if we endure it, it will pass. Later on in James, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay, it's just a matter of time before he gives up for that time period. Not that he's going to stop tempting us forever, but that temptation, it just lasts for a period of time. If you can endure it, it will flee from you. It will leave you. It's like, smoking cigarettes or struggling with lust or any of these things. I used to smoke cigarettes before I was a believer and there was times that I'd want to quit. And one thing I found was often that craving would consume me. But when I'd have good long periods of time of quitting, I realized that if I could just endure through that craving, if I could just resist it long enough, it'd go away. If I could just like engage with something else or talk to somebody or work or whatever, then eventually the craving would go away. It only lasted for a time. Now it would come back and it would continue to come back. But if I could just endure the temptation long enough, it would eventually pass. See, that's what we're called to do in our sin when that temptation's there it's only going to last. We got to recognize that temptation's not going to last forever. If we can endure long enough, it too will pass. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Another um, scripture I want to point to is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 13, speaking of temptation. Okay, it says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. See, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The temptations that we face 
in our lives are very common. Uh, Most of us can identify with other people's temptations. We face very similar things. But he says, to endure temptation, you got to look to God for the way of escape that he's made for you. See, it's God's responsibility to provide a way of escape, but it's our responsibility to walk through the door of escape. Have any of you ever like been struggling with something, been tempted by something that you know you want to do, but you know you're not supposed to do, and it's a sin struggle of yours, and you're like, God, I'm battling with this thing right now, and God hasn't taken it from you, and you're like, God, I thought you'd take this thing from you, but I'm struggling with this thing in this moment right now. I'm tempted. I'm having this craving to do this thing I know I shouldn't, and then you get that text or that call from a Christian brother or sister, or somebody walks in the room, a child, anyone, it's like, there's my way of escape. It's right there. I just wasn't seeing it. I wasn't thinking about it. I was so consumed by this thing. I just wanted to give into it, but I wasn't looking for the way of escape. He's faithful to give us the way of escape. He doesn't desire us to fall into temptation. Okay, Matthew chapter 13, verse 34 All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable, he did not speak to them. Okay? This isn't saying that Jesus never spoke in anything but parables. We see plenty of different scriptures where Jesus just speaks plainly to people. What Matthew is saying is in this context, with this multitude, with these people, in this time frame of his ministry, he was only speaking to parables to the multitudes, right? Because in this setting, he had to fulfill this scripture, which we'll see in a second. Um, and those who wanted understanding had to seek him out for understanding, which the disciples do. Look, verse 35, he explains, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. This is fascinating. He's explaining why he's speaking in parables again. Why? Look, that second part of verse 35. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He speaks in parables to reveal mysteries to us. Mysteries since before the foundations of the world. He's not speaking to us in parables so that we're like stuck and like, God, I I don't get it. No, seek me. You don't understand what you have here. You don't know what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to reveal to you deep mysteries that the prophets of old, they didn't even get. If you flip with me to 1 Peter... Chapter 1, verse 10. This is where we'll close. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Look at this. This is fascinating. Of this salvation, speaking of the mystery of salvation, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into." Think about what we have here. God loves us so much that he desired us to be born when he did, to be born when we were. 
Think about if you were born 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. You wouldn't know this. We wouldn't have the mystery of salvation, the mystery of the cross, the mystery of the scripture. See, the prophets didn't even realize. They're just writing this stuff down because God was telling them to write these things down. It's not like Isaiah was writing Isaiah 53 and he's like, oh, this is Jesus. He didn't, he's just writing down what God told him to write. They're searching the scriptures. They don't understand completely, but God has revealed these deep things to us. But to understand him, he calls us to, to seek him diligently, to pursue understanding. God, uh, uh, maybe I don't get this thing. Lord, speak to me about this thing. I want to know the deep things of God. It's absolutely fascinating to me that the Lord would entrust the mysteries of the kingdom to us us wretched sinners. Why? I don't know. It just speaks to God's goodness. He just loves us. so. He's like, here, here's the mysteries that everyone for thousands of years have been searching into. Why do we exist? Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? Here you go. I'm going to give it to you. What? All right. You didn't give it to them, but you'll give it to us. Praise God for that. But with these revealed mysteries, we also have to take heed to the warning that Jesus just warned us of. He said, hey, you gotta be careful. There's gonna be wheat, there's gonna be tares, okay? There's gonna be unbelievers in the church, okay? Not everyone that comes to church is a believer. He says, be careful of the birds. Beware of the false doctrine that's gonna try to infiltrate the church. If the enemy can't prevent the church's growth from the outside, he's gonna try to diminish the growth on the inside, the spiritual growth. And they, beware the leaven. Beware the compromise in your life. Beware of the sin in your life because it may start small, but guaranteed if you don't get rid of it, it's going to spread and it's going to corrupt the whole lump. And that's not just you. That's the body of Christ. We think our sins are affecting us, but they're really affecting everyone around us, even if we don't see it. That's the picture of that parable. So what do we do? We endure. These things are inevitably going to happen. We can't stop them from happening. He's just telling us these are prophetic parables, what's going to happen. So we endure, we endure in love with the tares. We endure in sound doctrine to prevent ourselves from falling into the doctrine of demons, the birds of the air. And we endure temptation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these parables, God, I pray, um, Lord, that we would take heed to these things, that we would recognize the gift that you've given us, yes, of our salvation, but also that you reveal to us these mysteries, Lord. Um, I pray that you would give us hearts to diligently seek you for deeper understanding. We know we can always go deeper, God, and I pray that we would be aware of um, these certain tactics of the enemy to come inside and prevent um, the spiritual growth of the church, the compromise, corruption, deceitfulness, all these different things that he uses, Lord. We love you. In your name, amen.